Jared Ritchie, Kyperian Commentary Contributor and your host for today's episode. Today, again, I'll be speaking and continuing my conversation with the Reverend James B. Jordan of the Theopolis Institute and Biblical Horizons as we continue to discuss music in the church, worship, psalmody, and other topics near and dear to both of us. Here's the next part of my interview. So there is an appropriateness uh, what we call glory is very often a matter of what is fitting and appropriate at a certain time and place. And uh, that question has not been addressed very well by very many people. That blind spot has to come with a, a sea change in understanding of what happens in worship and what needs to happen in worship. I guess picking up on that, um, just about the, the difference that worship should be, it should feel different, and putting some feet to that, stuff that you and I have just talked about in the past about be it uh, whether it's the sounds of worship that it shouldn't sound like the rest of the week that's your your arguing is that and others have said that it's the worship since the 60s it sounds just like the world what's different about it whether so you've said and others that the words should sound different the music we shouldn't get the same feeling so I would say if we wanted to take this in another direction uh, talk a little bit about uh, in light of that, when you chant or when you elevate God's word, we have so many hang-ups with that in Protestantism, along with many other things for many reasons. But uh, that's spooky to people or a turn-off to others or a little bit of both. Um, talk a bit about how that's going to be different, and that's not going to feel like a you know, a praise chorus, or it's not going to be like that. Talk a little bit about that to someone who's just, ah, I don't like it. It, it feels weird. Uh, are you saying that <laughs> it will ever feel anything but weird, or um, sh- is that the wrong thing to be expecting, or, or what? How would you talk about Well, let's chant? talk about what Americans call chant. Um, the first thing that anybody wanting to understand this needs to know is that other languages don't have two different words for sing and chant. Hmm. It's only because our um, our language has taken things both from German, which is sing, and Latin through French, which is chant. Uh, they mean exactly the same thing, except that in practice we think of uh, music that follows the rhythm of a set of words uh, where the words are pre- preeminent, we call that chanting. And if there is a, a, a rhythmical structure that organizes the words uh, in a repeated pattern, uh, we call that a song or a hymn, uh, like folk songs are. There are folk songs that are more like chants, but there are not very many of them. Uh, so that is what um, certain kinds of Protestantism are used to. Lutheranism, historically, Anglicanism, very much historically, have no problem with this because they've always done it, and it seems perfectly natural to them. Uh, there are different kinds of what we call chant, or chants that uh, sing on one tone and then slightly change at the end of a line, and then there are chants that are more like through composed. It's a, kind of like a long melody that's not repeated as you go along, Um more like Gregorian chant or accompanying Gregorian chants, uh, which can be 
which can be sung pretty fast sometimes and, and be pretty uh, joyous uh, in their feel, more so than simply repeating on a word, which is the simplest way to sing. And isn't that, don't you find that people have a connotation of what Gregorian chant is or a, what they think in their mind it is? It seems to be a bit of a caricature of what it actually would have been. Dusty gray monks on a recording from, you know, Telarch is not what the essence of chanting would have been in a biblical setting. Uh, by faithful Christians when it was first sung. Am I right? I mean, is that what you... Right. Uh, um, the Latin Gregorian chant uh, has been sung in a variety of ways over the centuries, but in the 19th century, the Romantic movement uh, was a mystical movement, and it changed the way chants were sung in a particular place in France called Salem's. And Salem-style chanting is what you hear on your record, your kind of mystical chants uh, that sound so cool and that you put on and relax, and uh, it's great stuff. But it's not the way things were being sung in the Middle Ages. They were being sung with a whole lot of rhythm and enthusiasm with sharp voices uh, that sound more like oboes and less like uh, mellow flutes. Uh, and, of course, in Bible times, they were sung with instruments such as cymbals and trumpets. Uh, so you're, you're talking about chanting a text, which is exactly what David would have done. He was saying what he wrote, and that's the way they were done in the, church, in the, in the temple for a thousand years and in the church for 1,500 years at least. Uh, but it was sung with, a, with these loud instruments and percussive instruments going along with it. So when you say that, you have to tell people, and I can't, okay, where can I find a recording of that? Well, nowhere. We're talking at the beginning of things here. But we're saying this is what the Bible says it ought to be like, and uh, so don't oppose it. Um, The other part of it is, well, there are two other questions to the, you know, this is so weird, and I don't like it, and I'll never get used to it. And the answer is, of course, it seems weird to you. You've never done it. You may never get used to it, <clears throat> but do you want your children to grow up not knowing the Psalms, or are you willing to set aside what makes you feel good for the sake of your kids? Um, the other half of it is, I know from many years of experience, I'm 66 now, and I've been doing this ever since I was in my 20s, um, people who initially don't like these things when they've done them for a while wind up and they would never let them go. They love them. I had some people almost walk out of the church we had in Texas because of this, but they stuck in there, and a year later, the wife told me, she said, my husband will never admit this, but we love the service now. So it was doing it over and over again and getting used to it and getting used to the rhythm of it and saying, hey, you know, this really is, I don't want to admit this to anybody, but we really enjoy this now. So, Well, I guess the thinking, um, and I'm here with uh, Jim Jordan, and we're talking music, um, but picking up on that, the natural progression, uh, going back to the Psalms. I mean, it seems like as Reformed people that are wanting, that are always reforming, we hear, you know, in all number of areas, trying to learn better, trying to do better, that the more we go, the more we want God's Word to dwell in us richly. We want it as it's written, as it's faithfully faithfully translated. So that seems to mean that we're going to need to address chanting. We're going to need to set aside for the sake of the kids, as you could say. Chant, do it for the kids, I guess, would be a, a weird way of saying yeah. that. But um, what, what but kind it's of... always been do it for the kids. Calvin, uh, 
when they came up with the Genevan Psalter, they knew that adults would have a hard time learning it. And so in Geneva, they taught it to the kids first. And the kids would, you know, pick up on it. It was a lot of fun to sing. They sang with enthusiasm. And then they put them in the church, and they taught the adults. The adults caught it from the kids. I wonder, uh, uh, Reverend Jordan, if you would talk a little bit about um, church musicians today. Uh, speak to our Reformed, uh, to someone who might be listening in a Reformed church, a biblical-centered, uh, trying to uh, recover liturgy. Um, they're playing the piano. Maybe they're playing an organ. Maybe they're playing a trumpet or violin. Um, given that you you said yourself, you're an amateur musician, a lover of music, a student of music, your life, a theologian, a uh, pastor, and all of that, uh, How? what words of preparation for this musician about what their role is, be it lay or officially called, what what kind of wisdom or encouragement would you give to a Reformed church musician today, given the broad spectrum of what they could, the pressures they will feel as far as how to play showmanship or um, make people feel good, or what, what words of encouragement or words of uh, guidance or uh, warning would you give? Well, the basic word of warning is the the leadership of the church has to be 100% behind the idea of liturgical and musical upgrade. And if they're not, and if uh, if you have an elder who rules everything or a, a pastor who says, well, if it's just not broke, don't fix it, we don't need this, and you try to do something and somebody is upset about it, then you're going to find they go to the elders and the elders shut you down and you're going to be frustrated and you just either need to just stop trying to ever do anything or find another place to be. And uh, that's the that's the reality in the kinds of churches that we have now where you have a plurality of ordained so-called ruling elders who uh, whose prejudices and opinions are formed not from having been to seminary and having been exposed to a lot, uh, but who tend to be guardians of orthodoxy. And I don't say this to try to be insulting. It's just that if they haven't been exposed to much, they're going to be suspicious of anything new. And I know men who've uh, taken over the music in their churches, and the elders have said, we want you to lead us into greener pastures. We're with you, whatever you want to do. Uh, if it really seems to seem too weird, we'll tell you. So they have a good position. Often that's not the case. And so you've just got to know this is the, the lay of the land. Now, in terms of performing your work, uh, the number one thing I would say is remember that you are uh, you are the servant leader of the singing in the, converse, in the church. Um Sometimes people think that the pastor needs to stand up front and sing loud. Frankly, I would prefer the pastor to step to the side. I don't like standing in church and looking at somebody else's face trying to sing and making expressions. I would rather they would just step back a bit and just let us all sing, led by the piano or the organ or the musicians. Uh, They are the real leaders of the music. You don't need somebody standing down front waving their hand half the time, not even in in rhythmical beat. so you want to have an understanding that it's your job not to play so loud that you overwhelm the people, but to serve the people by giving them leadership. The second thing along those lines, as a musician, 
Do not do anything that ever calls attention to yourself. Don't do anything that's distracting. Don't ripple up the piano to the top. Don't uh, have some modulation and change to another key for the last stanza. Uh, if you're playing a trumpet or something, don't blast it out and do some kind of a riff. Don't do anything that somebody in the church would say, hey, listen to that. You don't want that. You don't want that. As a pastor, you don't want somebody going out and saying, boy, he really read that passage with emotion and passion. You know, you've just called attention to yourself if you do that. Or maybe uh, we do want that, and that's the problem. You but, know? you know, sometimes people do want that, and that's the problem. But you, as a professional uh, leader in the church, should not want that. It's not about you. You have to, uh, as a pastor, you have to read the text in such a way that it has some expression but it doesn't do anything that causes people to notice you. Uh, and wouldn't you say that's kind of that's that's the acclimation? That, I mean, not the acclimation, the adjustment that musicians have to make coming out of the professional world, trained in a secular university, and then here you are in the church when you're not in a performance con- context. You're in a leadership, a servant role, uh, a facilitator of worship, and not. I mean, that's you can see a lot of hangups there. That's going to be. One of the biggest adjustments I find uh, for folks, I think that I think that adjustment is there probably for popular musicians who might play in a restaurant, and you know they're going to be doing all kinds of stuff that's kind of entertaining. Uh, it shouldn't be a problem for classical musicians who are slaves to the notes on the page. You are supposed to be bringing out what the composer wrote. You're supposed to be a servant to the composer. Uh, so no glissandos, no yeah, uh, no extra stuff. Uh, now you can. I mean, there are there is a tradition of performance where okay, we know that this is Gustav Mahler's arrangement of Mozart's symphony. It's got a whole bunch of extra stuff in it. Okay, we know that that's Mahler's interesting riff on Mozart. Um, or there are pianists who take a piece of lists and and they add some stuff in and ripple it all up, well, that's that's fine. But that's not that's not what you're trained to do. <laughs> Once you're fully trained, then you can do that uh, in a concert or in recital or a concert setting. But you're supposed to learn to be a servant. If you are a chorister, you have to keep your eye on the director and never sing out to call attention to yourself. Uh, that's death. Okay, you have to blend your voice. Uh, people in the church need to blend their voices. If somebody wants to sing the tenor line, uh, he should not be belting it out in the ears of everybody around and pulling them off to where they don't know what they're singing anymore. Uh, you have to learn to sing along with, and the musician needs to play along with, although giving a certain leadership. I wanted you to to speak about um, instruments. Uh, we talked earlier about instruments uh, and well, appropriateness of certain songs, but uh, briefly, what are the principles of worship that need to be guiding us as far as what instruments play, how they're played? We talked about musicians, but um, so we have hang-ups with certain instruments. We've got temptations with others today. Uh, what would be some bullet points or some things that should be floating above our brains when we're thinking these things through for worship, given where we are in America and in the 21st century? Well, in terms of musical worship uh, and instruments, uh, one of the things that has to be borne in mind is if 
a musical instrument like a saxophone or a guitar has very strong connotations in the secular world with certain other kinds of things, then it's problematic in worship. Uh, I was asked, I've been asked more than once by churches that are small, well, what about, you know, having a guitar to accompany worship? And my response is, uh, one guitar is for romance, ten guitars is for worship. Uh, the word guitar is just the ancient word kitara, which is the word for one of the instruments in the temple. Uh, a stringed instrument where the strings are floating over a box is a zither or a katara or a guitar. Uh, but if all you have is one guitar, then you make do with that, but you don't settle for that. Uh, on the other hand, the historic instrument for worship is the organ. It sets a different tone and atmosphere, which is part of what you want. You want a church-type organ. You don't want a circus calliope. You don't want a uh, theater Hammond organ. chord Hammond organ. Yeah, yeah. Uh, those things. A Hammond electronic inst- uh, musical instrument, kind of like a theremin vox. <laughs> it's, it's not an organ. Uh, that's what you don't want. But we we know that. And any musician, church musician, knows that. Anybody you want to ask about knows what a church organ sounds like, and can make it sound good, and it can lead a congregation, and it doesn't slow things down if you know what you're doing. Uh, what would and the reason is that a good church organ, pipe organ, or imitation pipe organ sounds like a whole orchestra, and so it it enables you to have one person who is doing all the stuff in with hands and feet that the Levitical orchestra, as a whole bunch of people did. Uh, if you have a cathedral like the one temple in Jerusalem and you have hundreds of musicians like the one temple had, then you can do all kinds of stuff uh, at festivals. And, of course, cathedrals often do put on wonderful works at festivals and have orchestral players come in and everything else. So the the organ has this rich advantage to us. Um, The piano has come in as a substitute for that when churches are poor, and... uh, but it's not the best place to be. A lot of churches play the piano and the organ at the same time. Uh, I've I've never really liked that. It's very it's an odd thing that has that comes along, and you can understand it. And sometimes it works okay, depending on the pianist and the organist. But uh, I think it's ideally something you want to get away from. On the other hand, if you've got some people who play the violin and the cello or some brass instruments. Uh, and they get together with the musicians and and practice before the service, say on Thursday night, and get everything in shape, that can be a wonderful um, addition. Yeah. Uh, the idea in Israel was for people to play instruments. David was able to play with his hand a musical instrument and calm Saul down and drive away an evil spirit. Now, that's almost an ideal for us. It would be interesting to see a church in a thousand years from now when everybody shows up at church with his own instrument in his hand, uh, and everybody, I mean, except people who have no gifts at all, is participating in some songs with their hands uh, on some type of instrument. So at any rate, uh, 
So you would say we need an instrument that's big enough to lead worship. The guitar is disqualified by itself. Yeah. And a piano is lesser qualified than the organ because of size and ability. Would you add to that that the organ has um, has the ability to fill a much larger tone space uh, than a piano can? Um, it's it's more like our own voices, right? I mean, it's a, it's pipes, it's wind passing through reeds like or voice boxes. Yes, that's a very good point. It's much more like the human voice uh, expanded, um, whereas a, a piano is a percussion stringed instrument. Um, so if you're going to play both of those, if your pianist, you know can think of themselves as the percussion that matches with the organ and not the other way around. Yeah, um, that, that, that could, could be a way to think it, make it, if attention were paid to figuring out the, the best way to make that work, could work, I imagine it could work quite well. Yeah, we're, we have a lot of work to do to recover some of the, the hang-ups we have. Well, thank you, uh, Reverend Jordan. Thanks for talking to me. Thanks for uh, letting me ask one more thing and then one more thing. So, <laughs> okay, dear, Thanks. thanks. As always, you, our listener, can find the links to this episode by visiting us at kyperion.com and by subscribing to receive our updates. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Thanks so much for listening to this episode, and we'll see you again next time.